Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford. Welcome to episode number 115 of the Effortless Swimming Podcast. My name is Brenton Ford. My guest today is Bevan McKinnon. He's a triathlon coach based in New Zealand. He's also a very accomplished triathlete himself and uh, he's got a number of professional triathletes under his belt. And we start off the conversation by talking about an eight-day fast that he's currently on. He hasn't eaten for eight days and he goes into the reason why he's doing that and some of the health benefits that uh, that have come from it. So uh, we kick it off right off the bat just going into this uh, talking about the fast and then we go into some more coaching and swimming related topics. Before we start today's podcast, I just want to let you know what's been happening on my side of things. So for anyone who's attended a, a freestyle clinic or a flyback and breast clinic for the for the juniors, then we've added a follow-up clinic option where you can come in, you can get your filming done and then an analysis provided within a week and, uh, and we'll give you some recommended drills and exercises just based off the the analysis. So it's a way for you to just check in with your progress, uh, get some more feedback without having to do a full um, three or three and a half hour clinic again. So uh, we've added quite a few locations, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, uh, adding Canberra, Perth and Brisbane as well. So you can go to, go to the website effortlesswimming.com. You'll have more details about the follow-up clinic option for those people who have attended a clinic already. And it's a great way for you to just be able to check in with your progress on a regular basis. So um, just go to effortlesswimming.com to find out more about that. Just recently, I added a second Hell Week camp to this year. So from the 4th to the 11th of October, we're running another Hell Week camp, which is held in Thailand uh, on the island of Phuket at uh, Tanyapura Resort. And uh, we've got two spots available. As the time I'm recording this, there's two spots available for that. Uh, so there's not many and they probably won't last too long. So if Hell Week Camp is something that you've been wanting to do for a while, it's a camp that we've run for, this will be the fifth year in a row now. And uh, we get more than half uh, half the spots are filled up with people who are returning for a second, third, even fourth time. Uh, it, uh, it gets great reviews, really good for someone who loves to keep fit while they're on holidays. They like a challenge and they want to improve their swimming and do it in a fantastic and an amazing place to, to do it. Get some nice open water swimming done as well. Um, and a lot of hands-on coaching, underwater filming, analysis, and just, uh, it's a really good holiday, but uh, one that will also challenge you too. So the details there at effortlesswimming.com forward slash Hellweek. And as I said, there's two spots available as of the time I'm recording this. And finally, just before we get into the podcast, the last thing I want to mention is in the middle of July, I'm going to be releasing or launching a brand new swimming paddle. And uh, this is uh, along with a friend of mine and uh, someone who's got a very comprehensive background in biomechanics, coaching, and also in product design. We've teamed up to create a range of swim products that help you improve your technique just by the way they're designed. And this swimming paddle that we're going to be launching is going to help you set up the catch and the early phase of the pool correctly just by the, the way that it's shaped. Uh, using uh, his background in, as I said, biomechanics and product design and my background in coaching and working with several thousand different athletes and learning the way in which most swimmers enter the water, they reach and extend and set up their catch and pull. So this uh, this product, I'll have some more details in the coming weeks, but I just wanted to let you know first on this podcast here about this brand new product that we're going to be launching sometime in the middle of July. We're going to be doing it through, through Kickstarter uh, to 
to get this product made. So we've got some uh, basically some test products that have um, that we've gone through, and it's it's pretty much ready to be made. We're just uh, looking to put the final touches on it. So uh, as I said, I'll get you some more details as they come to hand. But uh, some really uh, exciting, some really good quality uh, products that will help you improve your technique just by the way they're designed. So. Um, a few more details to come. So let's get into the podcast. Here is Bevan McKinnon. I'm talking about his eight-day fast. All right, welcome to the Effortless Swimming podcast. My guest is uh, Bevan McKinnon from Fitter Radio. And uh, Bevan, you're a triathlete, you're a, a triathlon coach. And right now we've actually, we've got the ambulance on call just waiting <laughs> for you to drop off the perch because you haven't eaten for eight days. <laughs> what's what's happening there <laughs> uh, well, so yeah uh, obviously not a su- uh, successful triathlon coaching business because i can't afford to eat that's basically <laughs> yeah. the premise behind it i make no money from my podcast um my athletes don't pay me and so basically this is the life of a full-time triathlon coach disguised as uh as, as dieting or as, <laughs> is it for- <laughs> no, so, uh, so tell us what uh what you're doing at, at the moment um, okay, well, I'm sure the listeners, uh, if they're attuned to what's happening sort of in the nutrition space, uh, whether it's talking about low carbohydrate, high fat or paleo or clean eating, or whatever it may be, but one of the hot trends uh, at the moment is intermittent fasting. Um, we've all fasted in different ways if we've tried to weight loss over the years, uh, if that's been the primary driver to restricting your calories. But There's a whole host of uh, strong research at the moment about the benefits of fasting and and what that actually may um, have in terms of anti-aging and improved immune system, um, reductions in inflammation. Uh, You know, it's even been used to to try to treat cancerous cells and tumours and infections and all those different other uh, health benefits. So I'm, I'm currently, as I have always been, which is quite a big self experimenter, uh, knee deep in uh, in a eight day fast. I was saying earlier that I've I've had two small things. It's what is it? Is it uh, twenty past one in the afternoon? I've had two small things to eat since breakfast, and I'm just wondering how much longer I can last. But it, that's kind of like someone complaining that they got six hours sleep instead of nine, and complaining to someone who's just had a baby and who's not getting any sleep. You know? <laughs> so, so you're um, so eight days into it. So is it just water that you're having at the moment, or is there anything else? Liquid. No, what's what's the what's the go? Uh, first forty eight hours, I was water only, and then uh, I introduced um, zero calorie fluids like uh, black coffee and herbal teas. Um, and the only other sort of well, I've added electrolytes in there as well, so magnesium, Himalayan salt. Uh, and only more recently, once uh, obviously there was a, a, a fair amount of weight loss that was going on to, to slightly ward off against uh, too much lean muscle mass being lost, I included some essential amino acids in there as well. But other than that, it's been n- no food as such. Um, the the science would suggest that if the body actually recognises that you've ingested calories of any description, the the premise of the fast is actually broken and um, all the the health benefits that I'm doing this for will be actually muted Um, so yeah that's that's basically been all I've consumed in the last eight days and how long are you going for 
uh, well, if you ask my partner, I've gone way too long. And uh, I mean, there are some byproducts of this. And it, it, if I walk the listeners through the what I've experienced over the eight days, that might give them a little bit more clarity as to why it's been such an extended fast. Uh, ultimately, to, to, and irrespective of which kind of um, sort of nutrition pattern that you might follow as a person or as an athlete, whether you're uh, a high carb person or a you know, low carb or paleo, like I mentioned, um, I'm, I'm typically a, a low carbohydrate, high fat eater, probably quite a, a lean, uh, sorry, a clean and paleo form of, of eating. So very little refined sugars or refined foods in any way. Um, or processed foods. So my uh, introduction to the first couple of days of, of total abstinence of food was actually quite easy because I'm already uh, quite well fat adapted and it didn't take my body very long to start um, moving into a ketogenic state. Um, and ultimately, the first 48 hours is is quite important uh, for, for what I'm trying to achieve in the sense that we want to run whatever glycogens in the body are completely dry so the liver and the muscles actually use up that glycogen because no no uh, carbohydrates coming in and once that happens you're typically into nutritional ketosis uh, but w after about the 48 hour period then the the magic starts to happen and what I'm after here is um, once the body goes into ketosis and where we know that there's no uh, carbohydrate coming into the system then it starts to sort of want to become a little bit uh, cannibalistic by its own default. It starts to, the body starts to look around for any other internal um, fuel sources. So it knows it's got fat coming in and that's, that by default is being uh, broken down and made into ketones to help supply fuel to the brain and fuel to the muscles. But uh, it, the body starts to scavenge and, and what it, uh, and, for want of a better description, I'll give you the scientific term. It's called autophagy. And it, that autophagy actually puts the body into a catabolic state, so breaking uh, tissues down. And um, it, it's, it's almost like recycling of cellular waste, and it's almost like taking out the trash. So it actually looks for uh, cells, dead cells, uh, organelles, all the different things that are in the body that are actually a little bit toxic, and it actually starts to try to consume them for fuel. So it actually does what is basically essentially a big, big spring clean um, of the body. But it only happens once you get past about that uh, 48 hours to 36 hours of, of total fasting. So I did my first 48 hours. Um, that wasn't too hard for me. I've done intermittent fasting for shorter periods in the past. So it's really just a, a little bit of a mind game to keep the boredom away from going to the fridge all the time. And uh, once I got into ketosis, uh, the other byproduct of ketosis is, is an exceptionally suppressed um, hunger. So once you're into full ketosis, uh, you actually probably find that you start to forget about food, um, which is actually why it's been so easy for me to get to eight days. And, and as I say, the, the, the end is whatever I decide it to be because I'm in a state where at the moment um, I just don't think about eating. Are you training at all? Yeah, well, the interesting thing being is uh, around about, and 
some of the science doesn't back this up, but if you do enough research like I have in and around these topics, even if you go to a whole lot of holistic sites where fasting has been used in religious settings before, um, they'll give good feedback as to what would happen through each sort of period of time that you might extend your fast for. And after the first uh, 48 hours, the one thing that I started to experience, which was really quite bizarre, uh, was quite an intense sort of gnawing deep pain in and around my thighs and my buttocks and my lower abdomen. And uh, there's no science to back this up, but a lot of the holistic websites that are, that um, give a lot of information about extended fastings suggest that that's the point where the body starts to actually release a lot of old toxins or existing toxins that are in the system. Um, that's a lot to do with the fact that toxins are stored in fat, but um, when fat becomes metabolized in a ketogenic state, it actually also releases toxins back into the bloodstream. Uh, and these toxins are situated uh, quite a bit around the lower intestine, and that's quite close to the spinal cord and the, and the nerves, and the nerves obviously don't like to be in a highly toxic state. So the pain that I was experiencing, um, which, and the listeners might find this funny because this nearly put me off uh, doing the fast altogether, on the third day of the fast, I tried to go to sleep that night and the pain was so intense that I ended up not being able to sleep the entire night. I had to sit upright on the couch downstairs watching the TV or I had to be standing where there was no pressure on um, the lower abdomen, the buttocks um, for the pain to go away. And so I was up the entire night. Wow. Uh, but one of the suggestions was made to me by uh, Dr. Grant Schofield, who's written a book called What the Fast, and in point of fact, that was on our podcast as an interview a few weeks ago. Uh, he suggested to me some light exercise would be uh, a good idea because that would actually help flush the toxins. And in point of fact, uh, an hour spin on the wind trainer was fantastic, and uh, the pain um uh, went away quite a bit and in point of fact after the third day it disappeared completely so since then it hasn't been there and and since then it's given me the confidence to throw some light exercise into you know days you know uh, three four five six seven eight and uh, how how long or what sort of intensity um are you doing oh, yeah very low intensity uh you know, in point of fact, I don't think I would be unable to do something of higher quality. Um, but for me, it's really just to keep the body moving because ultimately, if I was doing a, an extended fast by default, uh, I would probably be fairly sedentary or most people would be very sedentary because of the fear of, of having such low energy. Um, but once I'm in that ketogenic state, all my energy needs are being met by ketones. So my uh, desire to train, I don't think would be limited by being in a fasted state and limited by what intensity I chose to do. I probably wouldn't feel fantastic doing top end work. Um, but I've just taken the opportunity to go for the odd light jog or, you know, I have done a couple of two hour wind trainer sessions, I, mainly on the wind trainer, because if I went outside, I'd, I'd be fearful of falling off my bike. But um, no, they've gone fine. Wow. And are you what sort of um, point are you in your, your training? So is this kind of downtime no. for you or yeah no unfortunately because of as i mentioned the poorly paid uh coaching business and not non-profit uh podcast that i produce 
uh, we're putting a lot of emphasis on coaching at the moment. So my last time I, I raced with any uh, sort of degree of of uh, anger was Kona a couple of years ago. And since then, um, I haven't actually uh, actively raced at all. So for me, exercise now is for health and well-being. And you've got, I mean, you've got a pretty big a squad of um of a lot of pro triathletes and they're a lot of them are doing very very well so um i mean you travel you traveled to port mac recently you're going to Cairns in a couple of weeks time for the iron man there what yep. um is, is there anything you've changed in the last couple of years as your your approach to coaching or what sort of stuff um have you learned that you've you've implemented just based on the last few years and working with a, a wide range of athletes yeah, that's that's probably what's uh, made me change or evolve the most is is the range of athletes I now work with. Um, you know, when I first started out as a triathlon coach, it was uh, age groupers, and then by default, their success and and probably my success as an athlete as well meant that I sort of attracted more elite age groupers, and then um, as as they succeeded and. Uh, you know, my profile and our podcast helped a lot in that way. And we, we give a lot of information about training and what we think about training. And a lot of people tune into that podcast meant that I got approached by a few pros. And so probably three, four years ago, I started coaching a couple of pros and then again, they were successful. So now I work with, uh, I think I've got about six or seven um, professional athletes, probably at least four of them are, are fully uh, sustainable professional athletes and the others are aspiring. And I think it's working with those guys that's made me develop my skill set a lot more. Uh, it's, it's probably made me from you know the pen and paper coach of uh, the program is everything um, you know to someone who actually understands that relationships mean a lot as well and in point of fact getting to know who the athlete is and what makes them tick requires time spent talking to them and it requires time spent uh, watching them and, and and being involved with them so over the years I think creating opportunities to visually be uh, sorry see the athlete at you know whether it be at the races or uh, training camps um, being a bit more of a, a an F, uh, sorry a coach that's able to travel a lot more and actually physically interact with the athletes I think um, I think the biggest learning for me was probably taking Braden Curry to Kona last year and we, we spent a lot of time together and we, we uh, that included a boulder training camp and um, working with him on a day-to-day -day basis for, for three weeks showed me that I, I used to be quite a, a data-focused coach and I still am. Um, but uh, the personal and the interpersonal relationships that you actually have with athletes is is probably as important, um, if not at times more important than than what the data shows us. So, I think it's it's becoming a coach that only coaches a, a certain number of people, um, so that you don't, so that you're not um, sort of time poor in order to be able to spend a lot of time and in, in, in personally getting to know who these people are and what makes them tick. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And, and so for you, that's been a big reason why you've moved more well, pretty much to just full-time coaching and just in, instead of probably doing 15 to 20 hours of your own training, it's yep. it's all, it's all that switch to coaching now. 
Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, I, I realise I put a lot of energy into, geez, I don't even know what year it was. I, I wanted to win the 70.3 Worlds and they were in Malulaba and I wanted to win Kona Age Group uh, World Champs as well in the in the one year, um, which I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to do. But it, it took a it was really in point of fact uh, i think my partner chris said to me uh the following year because one of the one of the benefits of winning kona in your age group is that you automatically qualify for the next kona you just have to pay your money and um i was like oh hmm, do i want to go back and she looked at me and she said there's no way you're going back if you try to juggle that amount of training and work at the same time because you weren't the nicest person to be around <laughs> <laughs> so, and I actually recognise that and recognise that now I have to put the athlete first um, and the only way that I can do that is I need those extra 20 hours of, tra of training time to actually invest in the athletes and um, that was that was quite easy for me to do because, you know, ultimately I do want to be the best coach that I can be and I think um, part of that relationship building would only ever happen if I had extra time available for me to build those relationships. So training's got, uh, just for fun now and uh, coaching full-time it is. Mm. And how long have you been coaching for? When did you first start? Oh man, I don't even know. I've been giving people so advice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've been giving people advice for whether they wanted it or not for <laughs> for, <laughs> for years. So I would probably say our business is I don't know, maybe eight to eight ten years. Maybe I I couldn't even tell you because it seems that I've been so invested in the sport for so long that um, what went from being just chatting about triathlon with mates to giving them advice to writing programs and everything like that. It's just, yeah, it just seems to have been something that I've done forever. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, what do you, because I'm sort of similar, it's it's always been uh, about my own training. So I still like to compete and train, but a lot of time is now on, on the coaching. What is it for you that you get most out of coaching people? What do you enjoy the most about it? Uh, I must admit, like, I've always enjoyed the age groupers, and that that's really, really cool. Um, adding the extra dimension of working with professionals where, you know, it's life and death uh, has added, you know, an extra edge to coaching, which I actually really, really enjoy. Uh, you know, I think, and, and I would be disingenuous if I said uh, every, you know, coach should not be training and racing at the same time because not every coach is in my position where it's a, uh, you know, they're working with a whole host of professionals that are relying, re you know, really heavily on you. Um, my transition to full-time coaching was a little bit easier because I'd achieved probably the biggest goals that I'd ever set myself. So, um my ability to now live vicariously through the endeavours of my athletes is actually probably as tangible as winning on for, in my own right. So seeing them evolve, um, sort of the transition from my evolution as an athlete to trying to evolve the athletes that I coach, um, that's, that's something that I get a, a huge sense of satisfaction from. And look, I mean, Age groupers winning age groups and, and qualifying for big races is is really cool. Uh, but when you see a professional athlete who's never won an Ironman before win an Ironman, which has happened for me, and, um, you know, I've had, uh, I think I might have had 
20 or 25, um, 70.3 or challenge half distance professional wins. That's that's really cool. And I'm super proud of the fact that I've been able to to influence uh, professional athletes when they're sort of at the thin end of the wedge of their development. So, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, success for my athletes is probably the strongest motivator and, and putting myself in a position to help to try and think of all the different things that might contribute to their success um, is, you know, a, a, quite a stimulating environment to exist in on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting because it's uh, – I heard this question asked um, – it was on, I think, a recent YouTube video I saw that – uh, someone asked this uh, this uh, psychologist, "How do I, you know, what what's my purpose in life? Basically, what you know, I, I feel like I don't have much much meaning. So, how do I how do I get that that kind of meaning that where I'm work just tends to um, to fly by and I'm not counting down the hours and that sort of thing." And he, his response was to load yourself up with as much responsibility as you possibly can, and yeah. that way meaning will just come on its own and i think i think you get that with you know if, if you're coaching professional athletes where it, as you said it's it's life or death for them it's a it is a lot of pressure a lot of responsibility and i, I yep. think if you can put yourself in those sort of situations uh you know quite regularly that's when you are forced to step up your game you're forced to learn new things you might f- fail here and there but that's when you tend to grow and like yep. i think of maybe the most recent one for me was we ran our Hawaii camp in March and it was, it was all new. It was um, just, just organizing that and and putting something new together. It was quite, uh, it was quite daunting to think, oh shit, is anyone actually going to want to come over here and join me? And uh, it was the first time I I was going to be working with the other coach, uh, Gary Hurring from New Zealand. And it was just, all right, let's just do it. Let's get it done and, and put it out there and see what happens. And it was, it was it was so much fun and everyone had a had a great time and it went really well. We're going to run it again next year and it was just um, you kind of look back at that and go, oh, okay, it was all it was all worth it. And even yep. though it felt like a lot of pressure to to do it um, or responsibility, you know, it um, it all worked out really well. And so I like putting yourself in that in that sort of position because it forces you to um, to become better. Oh, totally. And and you know, by default, um, you know. If I didn't have the athletes stimulating, um, you know, like, like the funny thing is, if you think about me coaching myself, which I did for a number of years, I'm very complacent. I just get up every single day, never wrote myself a training program, sort of worked out what I thought I needed to do. Nothing was written down, woke up every single day, sort of knew what I was going to do. And off I went and did it. And by default, you know, a mixture of consistent training and low injury rate and maybe some genetics that you know, are predisposed to the sport, I got some decent results. Well, if I was to coach in that fashion, I wouldn't be making any money or have any clients at all. Um, so I like the fact that it actually probably stimulates an area of my personality that innately is not necessarily me because I think it drives me to become better. Mm. And if I didn't have that external stimulus and that reliance on me, um, you know, by default, by nature, um, it's not really part of me. But I love the fact that I'm always about the evolution of the person. And I think we've all got to strive to become better in whatever ways we want to as we grow older. And I think if I hadn't 
got to the point where I ran my own business, I'd be sitting in an office trying to do the least amount of work for whoever was employing me. <laughs> <laughs> but when you um, when you run your own business, you all of a sudden change and you change your mindset and uh, you, the buck stops with you. And I love the fact that I've created a situation where the buck, you know, does stop with me and it's my job to find solutions. And, I, and I'm much prouder of who I am as a result of that because, um, you know, that's what I attempt to do is find solutions for the athletes. Mm. Yeah, and we, you mentioned this before we started recording was, uh, and I find it, I'm exactly the same as when you do most, a lot of your work out of your out of your home because it's obviously you're writing programs and um, chatting to athletes. It's yeah, a lot of it is done from home. It's very difficult to switch off, and yeah, it's yeah. yeah, and obviously there's benefits to that. There's there's cons and yeah, it it, it can be hard to manage it. But I I don't think I'd want to have it any other way. You know, for me, it's um I kind of like that pressure of having to provide um, yeah. and 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 that, and have it on my, on my watch. Um, yeah. Because I feel like I've got to um, really sort of yeah step it step it up and um, just be innovative and think of new ways to to do things and improve and get better and like the, yeah. the freestyle clinics that we run we've been going for about probably three or four years now and it's just it's constantly evolving and we are continuing to make it as simple and effective as as possible like we people who have listened to this podcast will know like I've, I've mentioned this a few times but the first clinic I ran we did. I think it was about 24 different drills. Um, there was there was no filming, no analysis. Um, it was quite a big group, and like that's that's a lot for anyone to take in. And now we just simplified. It's we just do a handful of drills, um, but we just focus on what are the really important concepts that if people can remember those, take those away, practice them, that's when they yep. start to get results. And so just yep. simplifying it down to the the yeah most simple version of it uh, yep. is actually quite hard to do, but it's. Uh, it's really forced me to have to to sit down and think about it to be able to to do that. So yeah, just um, constantly trying to to improve it is um, yeah, yeah it, it, that's that's what makes things interesting because if it's just the same for for four years running, uh, it's it, it, you kind of oh, get bored with it completely. And I see it in triathlon coaching all the time. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, when I think I was on your podcast, I can't remember how, how long ago, but I always looked across at what you were doing in Australia and was really impressed with the fact that you'd taken swimming um, that wasn't, you know, working for a club and, sw and coaching, you know, uh, swim squads uh, a as such, but taking it out into the public and making actually a business for it that could, you know, cover off all types of swimming. So I, I thought that was really, really brave, but obviously clever of you to do that because there's a demand for it and you've created your own business. Um, and you're probably, you know, operating in a space there's far less, uh, and I don't want to use the word competitors, but other people doing the same job as you. Um, but I look at triathlon and, and say there's a whole host of people that are not evolving as triathlon coaches and it uh, frustrates me a little bit because they've, they seem to have got a template that they can just uh, regurgitate. Um, and part of the evolution of, of coaching, I believe, is that you've got to continue to upskill yourself, um, to keep abreast of trends, of, of sports science, uh, what's happening at the races, how athletes are performing, what are the strategies that are being employed. 
And, you know, the evolution from me being just a program writer into uh, being, you know, a, a jack of all trades, um, because you've got to know a lot about everything. You don't have to be a master of everything, but you need to know where to go to to get the information that you need for your athlete. Um, you know, that means that no single training program is the same. And so I can't just sit back here at home and go, oh, great, I've got my 15 athletes, I'll just flick them the same program. Um, and then work and life is easy. Uh, I'm the same as you. My, I have, I'm talking, thinking, existing in triathlon 24-7. Uh, and I, by default, it means that um, I'm, if I'm not writing programs, I'm, I'm upskilling myself. Uh, part of my intermittent fasting is, is uh, not, not for eight days, but looking at is there a space within an athlete's program in a, in a sporting sense to include the occasional fast for whatever reason? Um, you know, but that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of thinking and it's not just about program writing. So, so I think, um, yeah, once you're invested in what you're trying to do, uh, there is no clock in at nine and clock off at five. No, it's, there's no clock in or clock out. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's never ending. And, yeah. um, yeah. And, uh, do, you, do you feel like that's what's, uh, probably separated you from a lot of other coaches is that, willingness to to try new things and uh, i mean I, surely the, the the podcast has has helped a lot and um and then i guess maybe similar to me where you, you kind of build on your success you uh take a lot of uh, you take some athletes and you have success with them and um and that starts to build they start to refer people or the word of mouth you know that that does take a long time to to build up have you found a similar thing for why you think you've gotten to where you are yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, we started the podcast as you would have started yours as a way of, um, I think for me, yeah, maybe I'm just a, got a propensity to try to educate. And, and if I feel um, I see something quite clearly or a concept, then I'm not sort of reluctant to tell my peers or friends or, you know, colleagues or athletes about it. Um and I'm fascinated by the sport and I'm fascinated by the evolution of training and I'm fascinated by the evolution of performance and uh, recovery and nutrition and uh, the way the sport's actually evolving. So I think by default, if that's not part and parcel of who you are as a person, then I think your, your coaching skill set is going to be pretty limited. Um, and so that's something, you know, like the podcast for me was, that, you know, we had one eye on on trying to attract more customers. But, you know, I mean, ultimately, I'm in a, a position where we're, we do bespoke coaching. Um, we don't offer a whole, uh, we don't offer a whole range of, of, of template training pans or anything like that. So there's only so many athletes that I can coach. And for a long time, my roster has actually been full. So, so we do have this podcast and we're in this unique position as a business of me not actually being able to ta uh, generate any more income because I'm already chocker. But, um, you know, you get that working at one end. Um, people either will listen to the podcast if they think that you're giving good information or not. And I think that's probably a good illustration of whether you are giving considered thought to what you're trying to tell people and whether the information you're giving is, is relevant. Um, so that does uh, convert people into coaching clients. We do get a number of uh, quite regular inquiries about coaching. Um, and then also, obviously, yes, uh, by default, I think I've been able to um, move to higher and higher levels of, of athletes uh, because of the success of my athletes. I tend to 
really try to make sure that what we do is moving the athlete forward and if they arrive at race day with a clear strategy on how they're going to draw the best out of the fitness that we've built then you know your chances of success are quite high and and if you know you're constantly getting success with athletes then other athletes look in from the outside and say you know I'd like to have that kind of success as well so yeah it's it's pretty much a twofold um yeah sort of story for me but um both of them uh have been really really great for our business and uh and just from a swimming perspective what uh what's been working well for your i guess your within your coaching and your athletes because you're still running a squad in auckland is that right yeah yeah Yep, we still have our squads. Um, actually, funnily enough, one of the things that we did do recently, and it's taken us a long time to do this because we've we've really wanted to make sure that we took on board uh, the the right kind of person and the right experience and the right qualifications. And uh, we've employed Tim Brazier, uh, or he's come under our banner to start uh, coaching privately. Um, from another training base that we're running down in Wanaka in the bottom end of the South Island where Braden Curry and Dougal Allen and uh, a few other athletes actually reside and Tim lives down there as well. And Tim stepped out of the Triathlon New Zealand High Performance Program last year and he still coaches a number of ITU athletes and uh, he coaches some long-distance athletes like um, New Zealand professional Dylan McNeese and Tim's expertise sits within uh, swimming, first and foremost, that's where he started. Uh, and so I'm in a really unique position because I can send um, someone like Kiwi professional Dougal Allen, who lives in Wanaka, along to Tim's training squads. And and Tim has been applying a lot of the methodology that he's brought from the ITU um, day-to-day coalface of working with athletes into uh, his swim squads and applied that to to uh, Dougal and the like, and, and for you know, for an example, Dougal's brought his uh, Ironman PB swim down by about three or four minutes in the last uh, couple of months that he's been working with Tim. And I think the things that we worked with, um, if we use Dougal as an example, is the first thing I tried to change for him was stroke rate. Um, I'm quite. Uh, keen on open water swimmers uh, trying to utilise a, a much higher turnover and stroke rate than what we'd see in, in the pool-based swimmers. Um, we still, and I think I talked about the first time I was on your podcast, uh, very keen on um, using a swinging or, or a straighter uh, recovery uh, phase of the stroke as well um, to negate the the restriction of the wetsuit and to the in, uh, environmental conditions of swimming in the open water, be it the, the water itself or swimming in and around a group. Um, and so those things are, are definitely the, the the key aspects that we've looked at technically. I know Tim is a big um, believer in creating what he calls a, a speed reserve um, so that uh, what he means by that is developing the swimmer's ability to uh, have a maximal speed over 50 metres um, that is substantially better than, their say, their threshold swimming pace um, so that we don't find that their threshold swimming pace is actually the same pace that they swim at uh, for 50 metres. Mm. Um, we like to, to lift the ceiling on the the, uh, the ability over much shorter distances than their race distances so that biomechanically when they settle into their, their race distance speed, it's not 
the best speed that they can actually produce. So it gives them a couple of gears that they can play with. Um, because I find a lot of open water swimmers, especially age group triathletes, are very one-paced. Mm. And an open water swim by default, if you're trying to tactically be very astute, uh, there may be periods where you need to upregulate and downregulate, depending on um, you know tactics. Um, so those are sort of some of the the broader concepts that we're sort of bringing into what we're looking at when we're developing the triathlon swimmer. Yeah, that's that's great. And you, I mean, if you you probably would have seen some of the, the Commonwealth Games um, triathlon. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, pretty much those those guys at the the front of the field, very straight arm recovery for yep. for a lot of them. Um, yep. Stroke rates stroke rates up there. And yep. I mean, even though you don't really get to see the, obviously the, the pacing, you, you can only tell by the, the naked eye that's, um, yeah, the, the best thing is that they've got a pretty good sort of 50 or 25, 50 yeah. meter uh, time behind yep. them. So uh, yeah. And what, what sort of things do you have them doing to develop those different speeds or that, that top end speed? Is it a lot of short 25s, yep. a lot of sprints? Yeah, yeah, a lot of sprints, a lot of twenty fives, fifties, and the like. Uh, that and and a lot of it from uh, for me at, in my squads uh, from um, no push off the wall starts. So I call them zero to hero uh, type efforts. Um, so we have to actually develop that maximal effort from a floating start because typically that's what happens in most age group triathlon races. Uh, and really trying to get that, um, you know, that that high stroke rate from the start, and 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 it feeling, you know, with a concept of it feeling distinctly different to what would be their threshold stroke rate, so not them feeling exactly the same. Um, and then I also like to include a lot of band work, uh, and not always band only, depending on the proficiency of the swimmer, but, you know, a lot of drag um, with some maximal uh, accelerations as well, just to build that that strength um, through that particular stroke as well. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's good. I mean, strength is a, especially in a, a wetsuit, and if you're doing anything from an Olympic distance onwards, you're going to you're going to need to be fairly strong through the through your shoulders. So yeah, um, there was Challenge Melbourne, which was on a couple of weeks ago. I did the uh, the swim as a team, and my I hadn't swum for a, a little while, but after that that swim, my lats were just, I couldn't lift my arms above my head basically. <laughs> like they were just they were so <laughs> sore. And uh, I mean, I'd normally get that if I'm if I'm racing open water and in a wetsuit but probably more yeah. so because i wasn't as swim fit as I'd, I'd like to be but yeah um it, it does take you know quite a bit of strength that if you're, you're running and riding so much is normally not a consideration for a lot of triathletes yeah. so yeah yeah if you can do that that pool boy or band work or even like i've installed a, a chin-up bar at home and yep. my dog is in the garage at night so it's it's in the garage as well so i'll just go out there and just do a couple of um, chin ups every morning, every night, and my yep. just strength has has improved out of sight. And even if you can't do chin ups, I find just hanging off the bar that grip yep. strength that you get through your forearms. Um, you can yep. start to include some just some lat uh, pull ups or lat chin ups where you're just yep. hanging from the bar, lifting up um, through the kind of through the lats and then dropping down. That sort of strength yep. is really good for it, it. Translates into swimming really well. I've found. Yeah, 
And actually, I uh, liked one of your tweets that you put out, I think, last night as well, which I totally agree with. And you'll, again, it'll be d a debate and there's different schools of thought. But focusing on the swimmer, f finishing the stroke w right past the hip, um, I thought was a, an excellent tweet because, you know, too many swimmers pull out of the stroke too early. And I also believe that for those that have, have got weaknesses in their catch and pull through, about the only time that they do actually get some meaningful propulsion is in that last third of the phase when the palm is actually mm. backwards facing. Um, and if they don't, if they pull out of that stroke early, then they probably lose <laughs> that one third of magic that, that was actually going to move them forward. Um, so I, I agree with that as well. I mean, it's difficult to, to you've got to be sure that the athlete doesn't then also slow down their stroke rate because they've lengthened their stroke. But I do believe that maintaining um, good stroke length in the last third of the stroke is actually pretty important as well. Yeah, and especially I find especially with the, the exit of the stroke, it's, it's very nuanced. So there's like for sprinters, for example, a 50-meter sprinter, for, for most of them, I'd teach them to finish quite short and early because they want need to get their stroke rate up and they're still going to finish next to the hip but it's probably yep. going to feel like it's very short so there's yep. nuances like that but for a good majority of the swimmers that i work with who are around that they can be anywhere from sort of 145 to 215 220 per hundred many yep. of them are just coming out way before the hip and they're just so short in their strokes that they i just they miss that last little bit of magic so yep. it, it can be a good thing to to get them to do and um so yep. I've, been, I've been working on that a little bit with some with well, with the swimmers who it applies to and yep. uh and geez it just makes them look so much better in the water they they get sometimes an extra 10 15 20 percent out yep. of each stroke and you know if you're someone who's taking 30 strokes for a 25 meter you know for 25 meter length that yep. can easily come down to uh you know something like low 20s just by finishing properly if they're coming out too short so um yep. Yeah, it's uh, and you probably find the same thing with uh, with a lot of aspects of coaching is you can't have a blanket statement for for everyone and every no. type of distance and event, but there um, there are a lot of common things um, across a range of swimmers. So let's say a lot of triathletes and age group triathletes that um, that generally you you can you know, most of them are going to be finishing too short. Oh, so. yeah, typically. Like the one thing I would say, having coached, you know, learned to swim all the way through to you know elite triathlon swimmers, is uh, there are some basic flaws in swimming that <laughs> it pretty much apply to everyone. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, <laughs> as you as you well know. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah, exactly right. So, and, and I think that's why. So the the things that I like to cover in the the clinic, and it doesn't matter what level you are, these are still I find really good things to, or a good way to approach it is. So number one, we'll normally work with just body position and and balance, and because yep. that that can often just get the the drag um, oh, element of it right. Time. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's if you're dropping down and you're um if your your feet are sinking that's just going to make things you're not going to overcome that it, you know, you're working harder than you need to so number one if you can get that right then i like to sort of build in a little bit of rotation finding the right amount of rotation for people and just getting that element of um rocking side to side and finding that balance um, and then you start to sort of look into the the breathing the recovery and then ultimately the the catch and pull but just going step by step through that and normally when I'm working with someone, it will go through that progression. So let's say they're, they haven't got that 
first aspect right of um, like balance or yeah. you know, whatever, like they're kicking too big, whatever it might be. If they haven't got that right, I won't normally go to the next step. So yeah. it's just like go through it step by step, tick those boxes and build it up from there because, um, you know, it's like trying to, to ride a bike, but if you've only got one, one wheel oh, on yeah. there, you know, it's, um, you're not going to be able to, to get very far. So yeah, just, just and, having that sort of approach I find is very useful. And adult swimmers have always, who have taught themselves to swim, have just uh, jumped in and thrown all the wood on the fire. Uh, they haven't learnt the individual elements of, uh, firstly, how the body lies in the water before you even add uh, the rotation and stroke to it. Um, you know, they've, 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 they'll view a swimmer um, who's swimming in the lane beside them and go, well, you kick like this, yeah. you stroke like this, and you sort of breathe like this. Well, right, I'll try that all at once. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, and those habits are so hard to break if they if they develop a relatively proficient stroke, but they'll be so limited with what their top-end performance actually is technically because they have to actually go back to the drawing board at times and, and not just make a tweak to their existing stroke, but actually relearn one of the fundamental skill sets first and foremost and, and actually teach themselves a completely different stroke yeah yeah that's that's right and it's um one thing that i get occasionally is i'll have someone who um who i've been working with and they might see like a it might be a, a tweet or a post from um like a, I don't know, a a good athlete or a good a good coach and it'll be like these are the three things i focus on for for swimming and like nothing else matters and then they'll yeah. go oh look this person said this you know and i'm working on this like what it's just um and, I, and, I, stick. Yeah, and stick. <laughs> exactly you've got to give it give it at least six weeks to um yeah. uh, of practice but more more often than not it's going to take longer but yeah um yep. yeah just like that constant chopping and changing from different things you're focusing on or just um yep. seeing someone do something in the lane next to you and you go oh, i'm going to try that or the the thing yep. i be because I, I make a lot of videos and, and put them on youtube and normally talk about one or two different aspects and um that the, the the one downside to that is people will look at that and go oh that's really important i'm going to do that next session yep. but it may <laughs> not apply to them they might be doing that fine or it might just be a, a non-issue yep. for them so that's yep. the only downside to to that kind of thing and I, I guess we have that with the podcast as well you know we we'll talk about different things and people will go oh, okay i'm gonna i'm gonna try this i'm gonna try that and uh it can, yep. some of it can definitely help but some of it can may not be relevant for them yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, the thing about swimming is that it, it's uh, like Chinese water tor torture, really. It, it, it's micro changes embedded over thousands and thousands of repetitions before it'll actually feel natural. Mm. Whereas a lot of adults think that, if, you know, they'll come along to me for a swimming lesson and think, basically, it'll tell me one or two things to do. I'll nail it straight away. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden I'll be brilliant, um, not realizing that the motor patterns that they've already built up uh, ta have taken a long time to do that. And the motor patterns that need to be the new motor patterns um, won't just happen in one session. Um, you'll see someone and you'll give them some advice about a different way to recover their arm or how to position their hand at the front of the catch. And you'll see them swim the length and they get it right twice and they mm. get it wrong 28 times. <laughs> And then the, and and two weeks later, it's they've got it right six times, and they're getting it wrong, and so it's a matter of uh, as I've always said, 
elite swimmers and even like yourself i don't know if you'll agree with this or not you you probably don't even remember how you got taught to swim because you've probably spent so many years in the pool that the micro skills that you nailed as a as a kid happened over months and months and years and years of being coached every single session by a, someone overlooking your squad whereas adult swimmers um don't even get that that um, foundation training that you would have got as a competitive swimmer back in the day. So sometimes it's, you know, I find, and I'm not talking um, about you, I'm talking about other uh, competitive swimmers. When someone asks an, an ex-competitive pool swimmer about, um, uh, you know, how to do technique or one aspect of the technique, um, they find it hard to actually answer because they don't realise, you know, that they can't tell you what the foundations were. They only know what they are as the finished product um, because it took so many years to get to that particular point. They've, they've almost forgotten what they got taught. Oh, absolutely. I'm guilty of that when I first started coaching. It yep. was, um, you know, I'd have the, the way I'd be teaching someone to, to get better would be, yeah, whatever. Like just teaching kind of that longer, smoother, typical swimmer's stroke, which yep. may not be best for that person. But um, yep. I found it very hard to articulate much of it. Yeah. And if they didn't get it straight away, like, you'd be like, "Come on, what? Like, just do it." Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. This is easy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just do it like this, and, and not realize. And and that's that's yeah, that's perfectly illustrated my point. It's like you you've forgotten how much it took for you to get here, but then you think once you got there this is really actually pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then you're like, well, why can't you do it? <laughs> and and then you realize, oh, yeah, yeah, they've only been swimming for three months and I swam for 15 years or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I've just started getting – I've had three tennis lessons uh, in the last two two months. So, like, yeah. I've just started playing some some fast four tennis here at yeah. home. Um, yeah. And it's – and so these, these lessons, it's just – it's very, very basic. It's like, all right, how do I hold the racket? How, what's the, uh, <laughs> seriously, it's like there's different, even just like forehand, backhand, it's, it's a, it's a different hand position. You've got to kind of turn the racket. I, had, yeah. I didn't know that, you know, and it's, it's probably one of the most fundamental things. And, but I just had no knowledge of it because I'd never yeah. been taught. It's the same thing with yep. swimming. You know, there's these yep. things that, that we probably go, this is obviously, you know, this, this is the, this is swimming, one yep. zero 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 one like this is just the basics but mm. unless you've been taught it you, you just don't know so yeah. i've actually found that really helpful is going through these tennis lessons learning something from from scratch and 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 like you were saying i, I had a lesson yesterday and we we're practicing forehands and backhands and probably one in one in ten shots i'd i'd, I'd hit it really nicely um yep. and the rest i wouldn't and one of the things i was doing was just trying to go for broke every shot. I was just trying to hit a winner every time. and <laughs> Late and shoot it. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the coach is just like, just relax. You know, it's, it's about, um, what is it like? Not volley, like uh, uh, like when you're rallying with someone. Yep. It's like just, yep. you're not going for the winner every time. All I want you to do is yep. just get it in, get it over and get it in the right spot. And, yep. but even still, like I just, I'd only remember that occasionally. And it's, I yep. see exactly the same thing when I'm coaching. So it gives me a little bit of, um, not not sympathy, but it's kind of like okay, I can really relate to the the swimmers in the water now because I I, I get it. It's uh, yeah, it's a, that's a perfect analogy. That 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 is absolutely perfect. It's like now you've stepped out of what your area of expertise is mm. into one that you're in a novice or a beginner status and realised. Uh, exactly that um, and that you can take that knowledge as a coach which I think is fantastic back into your pursuit uh, your professional uh, you know area and go 
Yeah, that's reminded me, you know, I got to this particular point through millions of hours and millions of lengths. Uh, this person's not going to get there that fast as well. And then you can be more considered in how you deliver the message. Mm, that's that's a big change I've made in the last couple of years is, like I said, when I first started coaching, it's just like, why can't you do this thing straight away and just and continue yeah. to do it? Um, you, know, you get older, you get a little bit wiser. And yep. it's like, well, all right, so you're going to have to commit at least six to 12 months to, to really make a, a good change with yeah. um, with your stroke. So like when people, we do, I do a lot Absolutely. of online coaching and video analysis and when people um, are, are looking at joining, one of the questions I ask them is, are you willing to commit long-term to this? Are you willing to give it at least six to 12 months um, or yep. are you looking for something that's going to revolutionize your swimming for an event that's happening in, in two weeks because that's that's not going to happen? So Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, and, and I, I guess just finding the people who are willing to, to make that commitment because they're going to go through a lot of frustration um, and a lot of discomfort. They're going to feel very awkward. They might even take a step back sometimes. Um, yep, which, 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 oh, absolutely, yeah, which absolutely. Which normal. And uh, like I I had someone email me, this was last year sometime and I did a clinic on Sunday. He emailed me on Monday or Tuesday and he's like, oh, I did a, I practiced those things. I did a time trial at the end of the session, uh, like I was 200 or 400 time trial and my time was like 10 seconds slower. Um, Like I'm, I'm devastated and I'm just like, oh my God, what? All right. So like I'm kind of, I take responsibility for not explaining what yep. to expect that that's yep. on me so yep. after that i've started to change how i uh i guess frame it and the, and the way i'd like them to approach it so i kind of bring that up at the start of a, a clinic now is um you have to be willing to yeah to obviously go through that those phases to yep. um to change it so just to set the expectation because um yeah I, that, that's on me so i obviously gave them the wrong idea of how long it would take to to change yep. And 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 also, I think where swimming is concerned is, and again, you know, those people who come for a lesson or come for some technical instruction uh, are unprepared to believe that they can have to take a couple of steps back. Like I say, there are sometimes they may be performing a particular skill that has to be relearnt completely differently um, because they've just thrown, as I say, all the wood on the fire. Uh, and in lear- relearning that skill, they actually become less efficient for a period of time mm. until the skill becomes second nature and they can do it without it becoming too mechanical or too forced. And then the fluency of stroke re- returns, but they've improved a particular aspect of it. So, you know, it's it, at times two steps forward, uh, one step back, or sometimes two steps back, one step forward. So swimming is, yeah, it's a it's a cruel mistress, swimming. <laughs> it is, but uh, that's, that's what... Makes it so enjoyable sometimes. Yeah. Once you once you get to the other end, it's yeah, it's all worth it. So yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, well, Bevan, I appreciate you being on the podcast again. I've really enjoyed chatting, and um, we've got a lot of uh, I guess mutual friends, friends, and um, yeah, yeah, people who uh, I guess have worked with you and I've worked with, and um, yeah, yeah. It's always good to catch up and just see what you're up to, and no so for people who want to get in touch with you or um, see what sort of I know you have got a few camps coming up. Do you want to share a few of those details? Uh, yeah, um, if, if anyone's interested in the intermittent fasting that I've been under, I will be releasing uh, some video blogs recounting the experiences and uh, the background as to why I've done it, uh, and that will be on our newsletter, so they can go to our website, which is um, Um and we have our Fitter Radio podcast that they can find there as well. 
And we've just about to, if they are interested in coming along to some uh, all-inclusive uh, sort of uh, training camps that we'll be running, um, hosted by myself and Tim Brazier, our other coach, uh, our nutritionist, Mickey Willardin. Um, we, we're hoping to have a few more experts along to those camps and a whole host of the professional athletes that I coach as well. Uh, they can follow us um, or send us an email or look to our Facebook page or website and they will be run in Noosa uh, towards the end of July and August. And um, they'll, you know, they'll cater for basically everyone so they can inquire to those if they like as well. Excellent. Thanks again for being on the podcast. And uh, yeah, let me know when this fast <laughs> when stands, if it ever does. We might see you. You might be there in August. And uh, yeah, people will think you've well, I'll be you might have withered away. I'll be at racing weight. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Bevan. Cheers, Brendan. Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.